Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you if people send you the same generic conversation starters they message everyone else? Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Pursuing your future doesn't end at 40. In fact, it may mark the beginning of knowing who you are, what you're capable of, and what you really want. But knowing what's next and how to get there can be a challenge, especially when old narratives play on repeat. Liberty Road is here to share stories so that you can consider your possibilities, pursue your purpose, and move into your future with intention. I'm your host, Netta Jones, and we're here to listen, learn, and liberate dreams one episode at a time. Well, hello, Liberty listeners. Welcome to another episode of Liberty Road. Today, you guys get to hear from Sophia Demirtas. And Sophia is the founder and designer of FanMon. I said that wrong, right? It's FamMon. Uh, Sophia, come in and correct us. Am I saying it right? <laughs> it's FamMon, but it's a little heavy on the tongue. So I think you pronounce the M pretty heavily, which is nice. Okay, good. I'm glad I did it right. So welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here with us. I am absolutely pleased to be joining you on this call and um, hopefully share a bit of insight with your audience. Oh, I have no doubt you will. I love your story. So actually tell our audience a little bit about what your brand does. Well, we are a woman's wear line that really focuses on having beautiful silhouettes with embroidery details. And the fabric that I primarily produce on is uh, linen and other natural fibers. It's really beautiful, airy, uh, feminine uh, pieces that really feels timeless. I, Mm -hmm. I have some designs that I have been producing and reintroducing year upon year because they are truly timeless pieces. We've had several designers on here. But one of the reasons I specifically wanted to talk to you is there's something very unique about 
um, the story that your pieces tell. There's hand embroidery in them, machine embroidery probably too. You can tell us more about that. The silhouettes kind of hearken to what I think is um, your heritage uh, and how you sort of blend those things together. Tell us a little bit about that, and then we can jump into how you got started. Yes. Well, I'm very fortunate to have been born in Haiti, growing up there in a very lush environment and also a very nurturing environment. I was raised around a lot of women. My grandmother raised me direct, directly, but my aunts were very involved in my upbringing and also female neighbors. And um, as a young child, I used to have my uniforms made by a tailor. So that would be the person mm. that makes the children's uniforms or any special event um, type of gown or wear for my aunts and, you know, like other neighbors in the area. And, you know, like I felt at a very young age that this was really um, not just somebody who's cutting up cloth and making clothing, but it, it, it felt very communal. Um, I guess it's very similar in, in the U.S. to going to a beauty parlor or a barber shop. So that's that was really my introduction to women gathering and talking about fabrics and textures and detailing. And also in school, you know, they also started to show embroidery details like they would give these little white cloths with uh, drawings on them and would have to do little flowers or, you know, like little animals on them. So the introduction to embroidery was also at a very early age. I was very fortunate to become a young adult and start um, feeling that essence in my own womanhood. And um, that's really what inspired me to start making things for myself. And it resonated quite well with different women. Yeah, I love the context of the sort of sewing circle, the the making, the crafting of the clothing that you're likening it to a beauty salon or a barber shop that instantly gave me a, okay, I understand what kind of <laughs> communal event that is. And truly, when you talk about the work being in your DNA, that's a big part of both the Haitian culture and this embroidery that you learned at a young age, but how built into the fabric, no pun intended, or the DNA of the brand that really is. So take us back. We understand that, you know, as a young girl, you had an opportunity to embroider something, that you grew up with people sewing things for you, that it was a very communal event. There were lots of women involved in this, including your own grandmother and aunts. How do you go from that story to launching a designer brand? Truthfully, it took me a while to even call myself a designer because mm. I felt like that's a title that could, you know, be bestowed upon someone at whom at a very early age knew that they wanted to design. They wanted to get into clothing. My path into this field started out of personal necessity. Um, when I moved from Haiti, I, I, I moved to New York with uh, my mother, and that was really the formal form of fashion education, um, you know, because New York really offers a, a blank canvas that you could paint whatever color you want every day. 
So there I really started feeling my sense of style. And I had Mm. friends who would say, you should be a stylist, like you should get into fashion. Um, But I had a different focus. I really wanted to um, work into the humanitarian, you know, field. I I started out as a social worker. And uh, so fashion was not like that instantaneous choice for me. But Mm -hmm. making a long story short, having been brought up in in the U.S. and I also finished my master's in in the field that I really wanted to work in. And it it turned out to not be that grandiose, uh, life-changing uh, experience that I initially set out to, to, to have. And around the same time, I started dating my husband, whom um, suggested to me, like everyone else, like, you know, like you, you model in high school, you have such a, a unique sense of style. Why don't you consider fashion? So it was through him telling me that, that I started an eBay account and started selling things on eBay. And I did it for many, many years. Um, but I think after we got married, I had my, my firstborn, I was really looking to have a slower pace in life, um, a more natural way of living. And I really wanted my, my, my children to have a similar upbringing to what I had in Haiti, to not really be overexposed to things too early, to really appreciate the smaller things, to understand that a chicken lays the eggs and the milk comes from the cow, that sort of thing. Um, so I decided that I wanted to, to move out of, uh, us and I ended up coming to Turkey. So Turkey is really what propelled me to get into fashion indirectly because I started making jewelry. Um, and then that led to me making clothing for myself because I've always felt my own aesthetic. If I cannot find it in a store, I would just, you know, even if it's just like chopping up pieces of clothing and making that my own, like, that's what I was going to do to kind of like wear what felt more like me. And um, fortunately, Instagram and Facebook just really facilitated us sharing. And that's where the From One community really started to grow. Um, Because every piece that I made for myself, um, I ended up selling. I was making a lot of one of a kind pieces. Wow. And then with the clothing, the very first dress that I made for myself, I just, you know, like took a photo and posted it on IG to be like, oh, here's what I'm working on. And then I think within a week, I sold nearly 50 pieces. And that was really the start. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) That's really what sort of made me say, huh, maybe there's, you know, like something. Maybe I've got something here. Yeah. I would say with 50 dresses. Okay. Back up a little bit. Uh, Were you selling, when you said you started the eBay account, were you selling your own products that you were making or were you selling all sorts of things? I was selling all sorts of things in, in New York city, you know, like their sample sales, Um, I really became wise in finding um, designers and designer brands and, you know, attending events to sort of like buy things and resell. So I was really a reseller on eBay for many, many years before, you know, I don't want to say accidentally became a designer, but before I answered my calling. (laughs) There you go. There you go. I love that distinction. 
Okay, so that's helpful in giving us a little background on your skill set that you were bringing in. So we know you were working in social work. We know you have a master's degree. We know that that didn't sort of pan out to be what you had hoped it would be, which I think all of us have those stories at some point in our life. And then your husband identifies some natural inclination you have or some natural talent you have, encourages you, hey, you've got great taste, you've got good style, let's put this put, put this to work. That's <laughs> what kind of creates the eBay account, which then you start to have sort of some retail background. You get to know what consumers want and what they don't want mm-hmm. through that experience. And then in moving to Turkey, you say, okay, that's when you felt the call. Tell us a little bit about what happened when you were in Turkey that led very specifically to, I mean, that's a far cry from now I'm putting something on IG and 50 units are selling. You must have learned how to sew or you must have gone to find sewers. Like, what's that piece of the story? Well, you know, it was really... Uh, like now I'm looking at it, it sounds like, oh my gosh. And it was really that, oh my gosh, because I made uh, a contact with a woman in Ukraine. Now my facility is in Turkey, but for many, many years I was producing everything in Ukraine. And it started out as me um, connecting with someone uh, in Ukraine. Because around that time too, a lot of um, embroidery seems to have been coming back, you know, to the fashion scene. And it was really mm-hmm. reminiscent of my childhood, you know, and, and also a lot of it was being made on linen. Um, also, you know, like connected me to my childhood memories because in, in the Caribbean, linen was really the go-to fabric sure. for everyday wear. So um, when I connected with this uh, young lady, and I, you know, made something very quickly and I told her I wanted to make this dress for myself. And um, she was like, oh, OK, I could make it for you and send you one. And then within three days, I'm telling her I need 50 dresses. So we were both panicking because it's like, how am I going to do this? Because she had a very small setting, like one of these little sewing machines. And she was literally just trying to sell one thing at a time. Um, so when these 50 pieces came, it was like a panic for, for both of us. How are we going to figure this out and, and manage this? Um, but again, instinctively, that's when I kind of like pulled my husband in. And as they say, wh- whatever it is that you're um, wanting, the universe has a way of aligning it. And I think mm-hmm. it, it really it, it plays true in, in, in my uh, startup brand story. And that was also around the time that my husband had to go to Ukraine because he, he was um, uh, starting a partnership with uh, importing and exporting in the country. So I said to him, you, you have to um, go and meet with her and see what could be done. So when he went into Ukraine, he messaged me back. He's like, there's no way she could handle this amount of orders and have them done in a couple of weeks. So we have to kind of like take this heads on. So we ended up enlarging her space, setting her up, um, getting her machines. Um, She knew some other, you know, seamstresses who would help her part time here and there. So we brought them on and really established a small atelier. Um, And I'm like so fond of that because that really was what 
helped me to understand if I was going to be a designer, if I was going to make this a thing, if it was going to be a business, this is what I want to do. I don't want to um, produce mass quantities and have to stress about selling it because just having these orders and stressing about how to produce them, I think it was sort of like um, a greater understanding into having that control. It really helped me understand um, that producing on a made-to-order basis was really what made sense for me. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's really how I started the brand. And up, up until now, even though we have a much larger facility and we're doing wholesale and we're continuing to sell retail um, quite well on our own, it's still on a made-to-order basis. I've heard other women tell that part of their startup story, that that was so important. I think, you know, financially it's important. It's important in terms of getting your arms around a system. How are we going to manage this? But what's interesting to me is on a sustainability level, when we look at what's happening from a from an eco point of view, more and more brands are starting to do that so that there's not the amount of waste. So it's not mm-hmm. just um, because it's a great way to sort of get your start, but I think more and more we're trending towards that, uh, moving away from fast fashion and, and those sorts of things or trying, you know, again, from mm-hmm. an ecological mm-hmm. point of view. And so you are doing double duty you know, I don't know if it's by design or by default, but you're able to do that because you're producing literally on demand versus manufacturing in quantities that may or may not be sold. As I said, for me, having start that way, it became um, clearer that that was, you know, the only way to go. Because I think it really puts us in a position to be a lot more thoughtful about every product that we make because it's not something that you just kind of like pull from a rack and you package and you send. There is a decision that goes around making that piece um, every time that it's being made um, because it's not redundant by any means. Right. The sustainability component, um, it becomes a bit tricky, of course, because as you grow, the orders grow the responsibility grows, but through and through, we continue to figure it out. And I'm very thankful for that. At the end of the day, I really want um, our supporters, you know, customers, I really want them to have a sense of the work that's being made and the effort that's being made. Um, And I think sharing the process with them really helps them appreciate Mm -hmm. um, and understand that it's worth waiting for that piece because you have a lot of intricate embroidery details you select the, 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 the color of what you want, um, the final product to be, makes it more um, meaningful to you. It's a customized product. And so you're willing to wait for it. Okay. Just really quickly again, because I want those who are listening, whether they want to go out and start their own uh, clothing brand or anything that's sort of product oriented, I want them to really understand in your story that you weren't the sewer. You designed the piece and worked with this woman in the Ukraine to create a piece for you. And it was from that that you were able to sell the first 50 units. 
Well, from that particular design, okay. but I also sold and, you know, like I, I make every okay. part of, of the clothing. Now I don't, thank God. <laughs> yeah, you have people for that. Yes, but when I when I started out, and I mean, still now, when I'm doing fitting, I'm, I'm involved okay. in every aspect of um, creating, especially because we're getting a lot of custom orders. There's still a lot of me being involved in, in cutting and things. I'm just now not necessarily sitting in front of the machines and and putting the pieces together. Okay. That makes sense. And it's good. Again, I want people to hear, okay, so Sophia did do some sewing, um, but she was also working with this other woman and then eventually was able to bring in more people. And so that relationship with the atelier in the Ukraine is still happening. That's still where you're manufacturing. No, unfortunately, about two years ago, we started a facility in Turkey and that's like, that came about because of COVID. Um, My last trip to Ukraine, like I used to stay two and a half, um, a month to two and a half months at a time, like put together a whole collection with the team and then um, come back and prep up the next collection. And, you know, like that was sort of like our exchange for nearly seven years And then when COVID happened, I was under so much pressure, under so much stress. I, I, I believe I took the last flight out of Ukraine, Mm. um, coming into Turkey. And it was sort of like my ticket was purchased within hours. They just announced this is going to be the last flight because they're closing the country down. And, um, so I just came back here and I said to my husband, if we're going to continue this, I don't think I have it in me to experience that level of panic again. Um, so it's better that we start to structure here. So it took uh, a, nearly a year to transition because I didn't want to cut things off in, in Ukraine. So I allowed the women time to sort of like settle and find work elsewhere. And when our facility in, in Turkey was still operating, we still continue to have them make some of the orders just to sort of like transition with ease. It was very bittersweet. And then a year later, the war happened. So again, everything happens as it should, I guess. So you ended up, before you completely shut down the Ukraine, there was a facility in Turkey as well. And then you expanded that facility. So that's where you're currently manufacturing. Yes. We have an in-house team. I have a vertical business approach mm-hmm. to really monitor what's happening. Um, again, that's the way that we operate um, on a made-to-order basis, um, and you know, like really to to, to meet the customer's need. Um, it really takes us being present to 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 make sure that the customer's needs are are, are being met. So embroidery, um, pattern making, our stitching team, quality control, like everything, everything, everything is done under one umbrella. Okay. And that's all something that you have access to on a regular basis. You live in Turkey still. Yes. I I work with my team every day. It really, really gave me uh, a huge amount of understanding, which translate into like immense gratitude and humbleness into um, the work that's being done. It's been, um, in many ways, very challenging because Turkey is 
production, mass production country. So within that culture, there comes a lot of challenges from, you know, the people's personality to how they handle challenges, just to how they function and operate. So um, us operating, um, I guess, as an atelier, first of all, it's singular in, in the area of, of production. Mm. Um, we're in the Nizli. I don't know if you're familiar with Turkey at all. Here they do primarily um, bathrobes and yeah. bed sheets and towels. Here we are, you know, like making very tailored, well-fitted, detailed stuff with a lot of intricate embroidery. You know, we've been in operation here for about two and a half years, but it took me literally over a year of hands-on training um, to slow down the pace and the speed that each employee came through the door with to really help them understand that we're having things done differently. This is a different approach. Um, and, you know, to really help them understand um, you're coming into a nurturing space. This is not a typical factory, factory yeah. sort yeah. of setting. Yeah. So we spent, you know, eight to nine hours a day daily. So it was really important to help them understand, you know, the respect that we want right down to the respect that we have for each other as individuals to how we properly handle those pieces that are being made. That's so fascinating. I would think that most most business owners always talk about it in the reverse, right? That I'm trying to get people up to speed. I'm trying to get people to move more quickly. I'm trying to close the gap between the the way they work and their understanding of how we need to work in order for this business to function, right? And you're saying almost the opposite. I was slowing people down. I was helping them understand mm -hmm. the importance of the detail work, the craftsmanship, the tailoring, um, which in in Turkey, you know, makes you a standout within the manufacturing space. But I have to believe that that all translates into the final product and that your customer sees that too, right? Mm -hmm. And in going on your website, you um, make a really big deal about your team and the craftsmanship and the tailoring and the quality. I mean, you dedicate a, a lot of your sort of about page to that process. So it's a big part of the DNA of the brand and harkens back to your early childhood where it was, you know, this communal uh, sort of event. You've created that from a manufacturing end. Do you feel like in two and a half years, you've been able to create the setting, the atmosphere, the pace that you want with that team? It's still a work in process Always. because at the end of the day, we're, we're human. You know, we're not all going to be our best um, every single day. But I think, you know, establishing that through our hardship, there are still ways to communicate um, things. But, you know, I think another thing is I really lead by example, you know, like how I am in my everyday life. How you would find me at home is how you would find me in the atelier. Like I have days that I'm blasting the music and I'm joyful and dancing. And I have days where, you know, it's like, OK, let's, you let's know, focus on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, let's get to work. Um, but I think, you know, again, it's really um leading by example, like in my facility, there's really not anything that I'm asking my employees to do that I would not do myself. And I think 
when you're working with people and you're not only asking and asking and asking, but they're seeing, um, you know, you're also doing mm. like you're it's I have this thing that I say often, like it's all hands on deck. So I think that really naturally just brings the best out in people because they understand it's not something that they're just being asked to do. There is not really um, a differentiation when mm -hmm. it comes to the goal, to accomplishing the goal. And that's really um, how we operate. I love when a founder is inviting the team, her team, into the common goal. Right. And that you're kind of bringing everybody along with you, whether that's communicating what that is to them, inviting them to do the work, um, kind of identifying what their talents are and how they can support the goal. I think as founders, we really need to learn from your lesson and do more of that. It sounds like you've brought a, a lot of your Haitian traditions, and I'm talking about work ethic here, not, not from a design point of view. Some of the American traditions, you've tied them in with probably your learnings from the Ukraine and that early um, atelier there, and then brought that into a, this Turkish culture. So whether it's Turkey or any culture that we're dealing with when we as the founders are working with a group of people, it can be that the culture is just an age differentiation. It can be, you know, in your case that it's a completely different country. How much of that is your influence and how much of that is moving and massaging the culture that you're working with? So there must be some things that are Turkish things that are innate to their culture that you found to be, this, I want to bring these things into what we're doing here at Fan Mon because they're they add value and this this amalgam of all these different cultures, sensitivities, opportunities are going to bring together this awesome team. So what was it about the culture you moved into that you wanted to make sure it was woven into the the team and the kind of the, the company culture. Does that make sense? Um, well, you know, one thing that I absolutely love about the, the Turkish, and I guess it depends where in the country you mm -hmm. are, but for the most part, where we are, people are very honest and very direct. So, of course, you know, you have to understand how to, to find balance in that because you don't want people to be so direct and they come across as rude. So, um, to really create a safe space where people can express themselves. Um, so my team is very involved in giving me their feedback, um, you know, solicited or unsolicited. Yeah. <laughs> they would tell me um, what they think. At the beginning, it was very difficult to understand where certain mistakes were being made. And it's not necessarily a Turkish culture. I think it's just like a, the way the industry um, works. Because everyone thinks they're going to get in trouble. They don't want to tell on themselves. Um, you know, so it's kind of like you you just kind of like go into the circle of circle of circle of not really finding out what um, the issue could be. So that was really challenging for me at the beginning because I'm, again, being born in Haiti and growing up in New York City. It's like, you know, I did it and you move on. Um, so that was not the case here. But luckily, after this while, 
um, it's kind of like it's a little bit more direct with, um, yes, I made this mistake and we move from there. And you've created, again, to your point, a, a safe space. Any admission of their responsibility in a mistake is not, um, is not going to result in them having to leave, right? It makes sense why that's such a, an, an important part to have that team all working together and owning whatever mistakes and moving on quickly because your designs are so, they're beautifully tailored. They're very feminine. There's a lot of intricate embroidery involved. And so you would really need everybody to sort of be at the top of their game in order to create that level of, of product. Um, where are you selling your product, Sophia? Is it all on your website or are you in retailers as well? Yes, we're uh, in a couple of retail spots. Uh, we're on Neiman Marcus, Shopbob, Tuckernock, and a lot of specialty boutiques. And if we want to customize something, can we do that by selecting one of the dresses, let's say, and just saying I want it in a different color or is everything offered on the site, like the choices that they have to make? Now we're working in, in a sort of like manual way, um, but we have our um, web team okay. working on prepping a page so that the details could sort of like be filled out and sent to us directly. But now the way that we work, we have the orders placed um, and then whatever request the customer has, we um, they, can. they send it via email. So if they want a different okay. fabric color, if they want a different embroidery color, um, or if they have specific measurements. And we tend to ask the measurements to ensure um, that we assist our customers in the best possible way. Again, the whole sustainability uh, approach for us is not just in trying to reduce waste. It's really to ensure that the stress that's being made specifically for you stays with you for as long as you're you know, going to use it. I'm coming directly to you and I'm asking for one of those smaller sizes or one of those larger sizes. You're asking me for my measurements. Is there an upcharge in that customized? How are you managing that from a manufacturing point of view? Well, um, as of now, we're not asking for any fees, although, you know, that might wow. that might change um, because, well, we are still structuring how best to sort of like approach this, um, because obviously it's time consuming to sort of like redefine yeah. the fit and the structure to ensure that it fits the, the customer but, you know, like I, I have always weighed that on if I can ensure that this dress reaches you and it fits you versus you receiving it, it doesn't fit. And then it's kind of like it's like a return. It's like um, so I'm I'm kind of like seeing that as it, a leverage. Yeah. So I'm not necessarily asking unless, you know, like a customer, sometimes they want a dress a lot longer. So, of course, you have to use more fabric. It takes more time to be made. So we usually charge something between like 20 or like $40 if excess fabric is being used. But for ensuring that the fit um, is perfect for your body. What's brilliant about what you just said and what I really want people to hear is that you basically, I think you used the word leverage, but you basically said, yes, it's extra time. Yes, it's extra you know, attention when somebody's giving us that customized order, but... 
I'm reducing the probability of them returning it. And as a business, when we look at whatever those losses are over the course of a year, that can be a really big number. So for you to mitigate that by offering this and not charging extra at this point, it's a really smart way of thinking about business. I think often we just think, oh, that's extra time for us or extra attention to detail. We're just going to charge for it. And I think that would be fine too. You know, like like I said, most of us are going to end up taking it to a tailor if we need to. But for you to think about it from a what is best, not just for the customer, but it's also best for the business for them to mm-hmm. be getting a great product. One, we're eliminating, you know, um, the opportunity or the risk that they might return, but also we are ensuring that they'll come back and buy again from us because they've had such a great experience. I love that. I'm glad you, I'm glad you said that. So I have to ask you, you know, you've talked about kind of, I didn't even have to ask you the questions. It was part of your story, but you know, the highs and lows and the hardship of going through COVID and producing in another country and, and getting those first big, that, that first big order and really having to, you know, think quickly and come up with a solution to that problem. And this is all on the heels of it being your second, you know, maybe even third career, if we want to call eBay another full career in between. So what do you say, having gone through all that, to a woman who says, I'm in midlife and it's too late, what do you say to her after all those experiences? You did something very different uh, each time. What do you say to her? I think at that age we're very very blessed because you know like we've we've had our I don't know if stupid years is how I should frame it (laughs) but you know we've had (laughs) we've had the years um are not very wise years you know like very foolish years and I think um we're fortunate at this time in our lives to let maturity play a role to let wisdom play a role maybe to start replaying what our parents, our grandparents, or, you know, anyone who we really look up to in our lives have been saying to us. So I embrace age differently. And um, my advice to, to women is really to meet themselves where they are, you know, like not to necessarily live in, in the past and think, oh, I could have been this and that in my 20s, 30s or whatever. It's really pr- important to meet yourself in the present and gather yourself um, to see with all your past experiences um, what lessons that could be of benefit to you in that moment. And, and sometimes it's not even necessarily your lesson. It's um, courage. Mm. So I think courage is, uh, is key. You know, it really helps us put fear where it needs to be so we could propel forward. So if there's anything... Um, that any woman in their 40s, 50s are trying to, to grasp their head around. I think they need to just start it because instinctively, everything that we probably didn't even think we, we paid attention to or noticed, they're going to come and nurture that decision. That's it. That was beautiful. <laughs> that was awesome. Thank you for that. Thank you. There were so many things you said, whether it's going back and looking at the people that we respect and we revere and we hold up those sort of elders in our life and 
what that learned to us, separating what you call the stupid years. I'm going to start to use that phrase now. <laughs> but all those things that we we literally bring that into who we are today. All of all of that learning, all of those mistakes that you know, life gives you the opportunity to make. Mm-hmm. That's a gift if you can make it and still survive and move on. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Sophia, you've taught us so much. I've, I feel like I've learned so much about your process and I really wanted to dig in and unpack it because your business is so unique. And I think for other people to be hearing the details of how you brought it to life, will give them the inspiration and some of the how-to information on how they can do that for themselves. Again, not to become a designer, but really to take the step-by-step approach that you took to to starting anything, to launching anything. But before I let you go, I want to do something we call our fast fives. What's a daily practice that you do that keeps you grounded? I wake up with like a thankful mind. Like I wake up in other thank you. Um, mm-hmm. so that's, that's gratitude is, is a big part of me starting my day. That's a good one. And what are, if anything, are you reading these days? You sound like a busy person, but is there anything that you're reading that you want to tell us about? Oh my God. Contracts. <laughs> a lot of contracts. <laughs> yeah. That's not what we want. <laughs> anything you're reading for pleasure, I should say. Unfortunately, I have not. I have not picked up a book. I I believe um, I have uh, a list of things. I I went to St. Lucia recently and I came back with a list of books um, that I want to start tapping into. But again, honestly, it's literally have been the contract. So nothing spicy there. No, it's okay. It's good. It's good to have the truth. That's, I think, what we want to hear on this podcast. And then what is something that you do to unwind, to relax? Maybe it's going to St. Lucia, but what is something that you like to do that just sort of helps you to unwind and to kind of get work out of your brain? Locking myself in my room, taking my shower. (laughs) (laughs) Locking, locking is key. Yes. I literally locking myself in my room, like taking my shower and like really ease into the night. I try to do this very often, you know, because I I have long days. And of course, you have a family. Um, It's not always easy to do, but that's that's one thing. I started this year gifting myself a a little bit more of me, um, Mm. you know, because, again, works could really take its own life and kind of like continues to give you something to do. So um, I started this year very intentionally giving myself a little bit of me. So um, some days, you know, like I walk through the door and I tell everybody, please, I'm on my time. So I I would literally lock myself in my room, take my shower, you know, like slowly is into the night. I like that you do that at the end of the day, too, that it it sort of sets the tone for a good night's sleep, hopefully. And it's a great way to care for yourself. And what would you, if you had the opportunity to go back and tell your 25-year-old self, 25-year-old Sophia, who's living in those stupid years, <laughs> what would you say to her about midlife? What would you want her to know about what's ahead of her? Wisdom will come. Hmm. Wisdom will come. Hence your name, right? You're living yes. into your name. And what has launching your company what has it done to liberate you, Sophia, the woman? Personally or like accomplishment-wise? Personally. How has it liberated you, the work that you've done, 
the professional work that you've done, being an entrepreneur, putting this team together, what has it done to liberate you as a, as a woman, as a human? It makes me proud. It really makes me proud, not just the work or the success or the money. I think it, it really makes me proud to see that I have um, that ability that I've always felt that I had in me to, to lead people, to, to be caring to people. Um, because that's initially why I wanted to be a social work, because yeah. I really wanted to make change in people's lives. And seeing how things are revolving with the team around me on a day-to-day basis, it, it, it makes me feel proud. So it's not about the master's degree, um, because sometimes, you know, like we we have our own version of how we want things to pan out. And I think when they when they happen naturally and we remain true to who we are, it really connects. So I'm, I'm, I'm very proud. As you should be. And, and we are proud of you. Thank you so much, Sophia, for um, sharing your story of how you launched your business. Thank you for going into great detail. I think it is super helpful for, for people to hear and for sharing your wisdom too. You are, you are a wise soul. <laughs> Thank you. I think we could spend a lot more time just having another episode just about that, unpacking Sophia's wisdom and uh, look forward to checking out all of your stuff. And Liberty listeners, we will have all of Sophia's handles for you in the show notes so you can check out all of her beautiful products. But again, thank you for being with us, Sophia. Thank you so much for having me, Netta. Of course, it's a pleasure. And Liberty listeners, thank you for spending this time with us. I know you've learned a lot from Sophia's story and I'm excited for you to check out her website so you can see the beautiful embroidery and tailoring that she's been talking about. Uh, You won't be disappointed. And we'll talk to you guys next week. Bye for now. Liberty Road is broadcast on all platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and more. If you like what you've heard, please follow, rate, and review Liberty Road on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It helps us to know if these episodes are inspiring and equipping your ventures. Liberty Road is produced by Netta Jones and Elizabeth Joy Windham and music by Jordan Flower. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I am a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good wild berry acai grape pineapple mango lemon and mandarin orange my favorite is the wild berry because i just i just love a berry so if you're like me and you're drinking water all day then try splash refresher it's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.